Let's open God's Word together to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12. Hebrews 12, we are continuing together in our study of the book of Hebrews, and we are concluding chapter 12 this morning. And so let's look together at verses 18 through 29. The Bible says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly Afraid and trembling. So he says, you've, you've not come to that mountain as Christians. Verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Whenever we study any passage of Scripture, it is so important, so important that we understand the context of that passage. You have heard me say on many occasions that a text of Scripture without a context is a pretext. And so when we study the Bible, we want to understand what does this verse mean within this paragraph and this paragraph inside the chapter and the chapter inside of the book and the book inside of the Testament and the Testament in the course of the whole of Scripture. So let's consider the context of Hebrews as a reminder. You know the Hebrew audience was under intense pressure. 
Not only were they facing the big threat of persecution under Nero, but they were also being taunted by family, by friends, by synagogue officials. And they were being taunted because they had left the historic Jewish traditions and turned in faith to Jesus Christ as the Savior Messiah. There were also those who were trying to decide whether or not they would leave Judaism and go all the way in faith to Christ. They're listening, they're learning, they're weighing the evidence. And among both groups, without a doubt, there would have been voices declaring to them, you're on the wrong path. You're going the wrong direction. You're leaving your heritage, your heritage in Abraham and Jacob and Moses. You're forsaking Sinai. And as a result, you're forsaking the blessing of God. You'll never make it following Jesus. Jesus is not the Messiah. What are you doing? So the writer of Hebrews is giving to us, and what we've looked at for 12 chapters, is what many believe as originally one long sermon. You think I preach long. The writer of Hebrews was a long-winded preacher. What we have is the transcript, if you like. We're studying, reading the transcript. And so what many scholars believe is that this was one long sermon Delivered, And throughout this sermon, he is compelling them to continue to press on with faith in Christ. Illustrating how that Jesus is so much better. He is so much better than anyone or anything, regardless of the suffering and the persecution or the struggles that they and we experience along the way. I remind us of this because that context is the continued backdrop of this peculiar section of verses. A section that he is contrasting two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He is showing them that although their Jewish roots and traditions revere Mount Sinai as the pinnacle of Jewish faith, that there is actually a better mountain, a better mountain than Sinai. And it is to that mountain, the better mountain, Christians come. So, nothing fancy in terms of outline this morning. I want you to see, number one, Mount Sinai. (laughs) Mount Sinai, which is representation of the law, the giving of the law. Mount Sinai was the place Moses climbed to receive God's law on behalf of Israel. So when we talk about Sinai, as the writer does here, we're talking about the very place where the law was given And that scene unfolds for us in the Old Testament book of Exodus. encourage you to write down Exodus chapter 19 and perhaps this afternoon go back and read and be reminded of all the events that took place when God came to Mount Sinai and gave Moses the law that the children of Israel were to follow. 
And for the people, it's a scene of tremendous fear. That is, the scene surrounding Mount Sinai. Because this was where God, in all his holiness, was going to come down. God, in all of his holiness, the the one who is separated from man, he's going to come down and rest on Mount Sinai so that he can have a meeting face-to-face with Moses, the leader of Israel. And so to prepare for that meeting, God had sent Moses a message that he had to help the people make preparation for this event. Even though they themselves would not be meeting in the presence of God, they still, due to the proximity of God's holiness, had to make themselves ready. They had to make themselves prepared for God to come down. There were several things they had to do as a part of their requirements. The one was they had to wash all of their clothes. You say, well, what's the big deal? Just throw a load in the laundry. Well, they were living in the desert. Very, very dirty people. Dirty materials. Uh, dirty clothing. They didn't have Samsung in the desert. There's no laundry machine. So this whole process, it, it took quite a bit of time to do on any occasion. But now the entire people as a whole had to make every article of clothing that they possessed and owned absolutely purified. It had to be cleaned all the way through. Not only that, they were required during this period to abstain from all sexual relations. Again, God was doing this ceremonially so that when he did come down, the people at the base of the mountain would be a clean people, clean physically, clean in their clothing. They they were also commanded not to touch the mountain at all. Moses was the only one who could go up. And so the rule was, do not come near the mountain. Do not touch it. Not even the edge of it. Because if you touch the mountain, even the edge of the mountain, you will die. In fact, as we read here in Hebrews, not even the animals were allowed to come close to the mountain. That if an animal got out of the, of the cage, so to speak, out of the pen and got close to the edge of the mountain, that they were to shoot that animal. They were to stone it before it got to the end. Because even if the animal came into contact with the holiness of God, resting on that mountain, it would be bad news for that creature. And so they had to make themselves clean. They had to stay away from the mountains. Why, why all of this? Because God's presence was going to be there, church. And his presence would display the awesome and incomprehensible perfection and power of God's holiness. If an uninvited sinner touched that mountain while God was present, then due to his sinful defilement, that sinner would instantly die. Because we who are sinners, we have no speck of perfection in our lives. We are flawed with sin. We are unholy people. And to come into the presence of God at this moment before Christ comes. And the two intersect. It's not good for the unholy one. They could not come. No sinner can come near the holiness of God and live. 
That's an important part for us to understand theologically when we begin to wrap our hands around the grace of the gospel. That no sinner can come near the holiness of God and live. And so they made preparation for three days. Three days of laundry. Three days of sexual cleanness. And on the third day, they, they saw a, a thick, dark, fiery cloud come down. It covered the top of Mount Sinai. Through the cloud, there was, there was loud thunder. And the Bible says, great lightning. The sound of trumpets went forth from the cloud. And it grew louder and louder as the earth began to violently shake. Earthquake-like tremors. The people were sorely afraid. In fact, when this began to happen, as God's presence came down, verse 19 of our text tells us there in Hebrews 12 that those who heard it, when they heard the thunder and lightning and the trumpets growing louder and louder, when they saw the fiery cloud and the dark thickness of the smoke, those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them. They knew why God was coming. God was coming to speak to Moses on behalf of the people. They were so afraid, they're asking God not to speak. They're terrified. Let me read to you what it says in Exodus about this particular scene. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us. (laughs) We will hear you. But do not let God speak with us lest we die. (laughs) The idea that God's going to come speak to you sounds good until in your sinful, unholy state, you begin to sense God and his perfect holiness coming on the scene. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And so quickly the people are saying, uh, we've changed our mind, Moses. We'd rather you talk to us because you're a sinner like us. You talk to us. We don't want God to speak. This is too scary. Even Moses was greatly afraid. Did you notice that a moment ago? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Why this display? This this display of God's holiness was to show the absolute unapproachableness of God. We need to get this. This was to show the absolute unapproachableness of God. It revealed the incredible sinfulness of man and the unfathomable holiness of of God. So in contrast to God's holiness, we recognize that we stand condemned to death. Condemned to death because of the great gulf that separates us from God. And this is where the giving of the law comes into play. Because through the law, God not only shows humanity just how sinful we are, 
He is also showing humanity how impossible it is for sinners to come to God. So here's God's holiness, God's absolute perfection, and here's man's imperfection and man's sinfulness and man's holiness. And by the way, God says, I'm going to give you a law that is patterned after my holiness for you to follow, and you're not going to be able to follow it. And it's going to show you you can't follow it, which is going to further tell you that there's nothing you can ever do to get into my presence. Nothing you can do. We're not good enough. We will never be good enough. You say, well, Pastor Blankenship, this is a bummer. I came to be encouraged this morning. Well, you hang with me because I'm going to encourage you in just a moment. But I'm here to tell you the truth. And the truth is right now, you and I are not good enough. We will never be good enough. To break one law of God is to break all the laws of God. So when you start thinking pretty good about yourself and you're going through those Ten Commandments, by the way, there's a lot more than ten. There's over 600 of them. You start feeling really good about yourself. Well, I hadn't done this and I hadn't done that and I hadn't done this. Well, you know, most of them I've done a pretty good job with. No, 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 listen. The Bible says you've broke one, you're guilty of all. That's how holy God is. That's how unholy we are. The law, the law of God at Sinai makes no allowance for less than perfect obedience. Say that again. The law makes no allowance for anything less than perfect obedience. We homeschool our kids. We had a really busy week. A lot going on. Kathleen's doing a little bit of overtime around the church, and so we're trying to share a little bit of responsibility. She was between running around doctor's appointments this week with Jaden and and man up stuff. Uh, Kids were here with me a lot in the office, and I'm helping them the best that I can. I've learned something through homeschool, and I, I, I could never be a teacher. <laughs> God bless you, teachers. So anyway, my, my son had a spelling test, and I was sitting here in the office, and the rule is with his curriculum that if he passes with a 100, the practice spelling test, he doesn't have to take the real test the next day. That's something they've always done. And so sometimes he gets it, sometimes he doesn't. And so he goes and he takes his practice test, I call it out for him, and then I start grades like 25 spelling words and then five vocab words. And so it's time to, he usually does a good job. It's time to test it. I grade it, I get it out, and correct, correct, correct. We get all the way down to the last one. He gets every one of them correct, every definition, every spelling word. We get to the last word, and he gets every letter right in that last word except for one. He exchanged the I and the E when they were supposed to be the other way around. And he's like, oh, man, mama's going to make me take this test tomorrow. I said, well, Keegan, I'm the principal. So let's go talk to your teacher. And so I took his test, and I told, you know, Keegan got it all worked out. He's standing here. I said, Mom, look, he got them all right. There's just one letter. What do we say? We have him spell it for us right now. We'll go ahead and give him that hundred. And so, yeah, he spelled it. The word was foreigner. He spelled it. He spelled it right on the hat right there. And Kathleen said, I guess that's right. We're good to go. You know, he was so excited. He didn't have to take the test on Friday. You see, we can make those allowances, right? God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. You may think every part of your life is absolutely accurate down into this one fine area where two letters are reversed. You are still guilty of failing the whole test. His law allows for nothing 
but perfect obedience. So notice what he says in verse 18. That's Sinai. You've not come to Sinai, however. You've not come to that mountain, believer. You've not come to Sinai, Christian. We've not come to the old covenant being bound by the law that burdens us. We've not come to a mountain of expectation. Listen to me. We've not come to a mountain of expectation where we are burdened by a requirement to be absolutely perfect, to keep all the rules or to make sure we followed every speck of ritual that is required. You see, unlike Israel's experience, Christians do not meet God at Sinai. We don't live under the fear that if we mess up, God is going to condemn us. This was the underlying problem with Jewish tradition and their rejection of Jesus. They were still immersed in the futile pursuit of attempting to live up to Sinai, to live up to the law, to do everything in their righteousness to earn acceptance with God based upon their behavior to the law that God had given. But as we see here, even with Moses, Sinai brings tremendous fear. And you know why Sinai brings tremendous fear? Because at Mount Sinai, everything about our relationship with God depends on us. Everything. I can't even go to the base of the mountain where his presence is, much less get into the presence. Unless... I am absolutely perfect according to the law. No wonder we're trembling. No wonder we're fearful. Sinai brings tremendous fear. But let me tell you where Sinai succeeds. It reveals the perfect holiness of God. It shows us just how awesome, how awesomely terrifying God is. How perfect, how holy But where it did not succeed is, is that the law could never change people's hearts. Because you know what's fascinating? And this is another sermon for another time. But even after this whole episode of being fearful and trembling and and God coming down the cloud giving the law, it was just a few days later that Aaron and the whole group's building a golden calf. You see, the law succeeds even as the New Testament tells us because it shows us how holy God is and how wretched we are. But it can never change your heart. It can never change your heart. And that's where salvation comes. Salvation is not a list of rules. It's not a groupings of do's and don'ts that I've got to be in order to be accepted of God. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is heart transformation. So the point here is Sinai is the law. Sinai is the place of legalism. Sinai is the place where men and women try to be their best to do whatever they can in their own strength and righteousness, hoping God will accept them. But there's another mountain that the writer speaks of. And you'll be glad to note that we only have two points and two mountains. We have Mount Sinai, and then secondly, we have Mount Zion, Mount Zion. Now, if Mount Sinai is the law, Mount Zion is the gospel, or or grace, grace. 
He's contrasting law and grace, Sinai and Zion. Look again at verse 18. He's, he's speaking to these believers in the Hebrew audience. He says, you've not come to Mount Sinai. Now look at verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. You've not come to Sinai. You've come to Zion. Sinai is the law. Zion is grace. Sinai is the old covenant. Zion is the new covenant. You know what Sinai says? Sinai says you will never be good enough to approach God. If you try to approach God in your sinfulness, you will die. That's what Sinai says. But let me tell you what Zion says. Zion says you can approach God. And you can now approach him on the basis of God's son, Jesus Christ. Not by your behavior, but by his grace. We're still sinful people. We still break the law. Unholiness is often a characteristic of our life. But now we can go into the presence of God without fear because Jesus Christ, the perfect one, has become our sacrifice. He has taken our place. And friend, that's the glory of this chapter, this section of verses. You don't meet God at Mount Sinai where the law was given. You meet God at Mount Zion where the law was fulfilled. Where the law was fulfilled. You see, everything the law demanded, everything, it was, it was impossible for man to fulfill. Sinful man, that is. Impossible. In fact, Paul wrote to the church at Rome about this. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, we got a problem. You can try to be good enough. You can try to do enough. But the, but the sad reality is it's impossible. It's impossible. No flesh will be justified in God's sight. No one can be saved by doing the law, because nobody can fulfill the law. But, but, everything the law demanded was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. <laughs> what we could never do, Jesus Christ, in his perfect holiness, did on our behalf. He paid the price for sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. And you know what qualified him to do so? His perfection. His perfection. Every man who has ever lived, every woman who has ever lived needs a perfect Savior. And there's only one option for that. Jesus. He died because we were the ones who deserved to die. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Why was it borrowed? Because he wasn't planning on staying there for more than three days. He rose again from the dead to symbolize and justify our righteousness to give us victory in him. He did what we could not do. And the reason it all hinges on him is because he's the only perfect one to ever live. Moses couldn't do that. Moses killed a man. 
Abraham couldn't do that. Abraham made bad decisions. Jacob couldn't do that. Jacob was kind of a wimp sometimes. There ain't no one in that Bible except for Jesus Christ. There ain't no one in this room except for the presence of Jesus Christ who can do what he has done for us. It all hinges on Jesus because he is perfection. He did what we could never do. He perfectly obeyed the law. He fulfilled it. So God does not come to you this morning and say, here's my law. Keep it to perfection and you will see me. Now, I'm afraid some of you have been taught that. Some of you have been told, all right, here's the list. Check off everything on the list, and you'll see God. God doesn't say that this morning. He doesn't say, here's my law, keep it to perfection, and you will see me. No, what he says is, here's my son. Here's my son, Jesus. Trust in his righteousness and not your own righteousness, and you will see me. And you will see me. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The very next verse says, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're all sinners. We all come short of the glory of God. We can't come to the edge of Mount Sinai, but the good news is we don't go to Sinai to get to God. We go to Zion to get to God. Sinai is condemnation, but Zion, there is a cross, a cross where Jesus died, a cross that he shed his blood on, a cross where he says, come here and you'll see God. We are justified freely. By the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Sinai was filled with fear and separation, but man, let me tell you, Zion, I don't have time to park on these things, but let me just mention them because you're in your text, unless you've closed your Bible on me already. But we see here that at Zion, verse 22, at, at Zion we have heavenly citizenship. Now look, look, the, 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 the comparison is here, Sinai, it's fear, it's trembling, it's separation from God, there's no getting into his presence, you're not good enough, it's legalism, it's law, 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 but come on over here to Zion, let me show you what Zion gives you, Zion makes you a citizen of heaven. When you trust Jesus and his righteousness and stop trusting you and your righteousness, you get to become a citizen of heaven. The city of the living God. You've come to Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Of course, he's speaking in eschatological terms, but Zion is actually a real place. Kathleen and I have had the privilege to stand on Mount Zion, the city of David that God gave him in which he built his kingdom and started as he moved the capital city to Jerusalem. But it speaks of a heavenly place, a heavenly place that is the heavenly city of God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And here's the tension that you and I live in as Christians. We, we live in what is often referred to as the already but not yet. Okay? 
We are already citizens of heaven, but we are not quite there yet. So God gives us a foretaste of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And so we sing the hymn. We're marching on to Zion, the beautiful city of God. We're already citizens of Zion. We've already reached Zion in terms of our faith, but we long for the day in which we get to live in Zion. We're heavenly citizens. At Zion, not only that, we join a company of angels. Look at it here. The Bible says you've come to an innumerable company of angels. An innumerable company of angels. Can you imagine the celestial scene of heaven's worshipers? As an innumerable number of angels are gathered around the throne of God, worshiping and praising with him. The Bible says we get to join that. And again, we're finding that already not yet tension. One day we will get to join them fully for what they're doing right now in the celestial city of Zion. But what we do when we gather together ought to look like, it's, it's rehearsal, if you will, because God has already saved us. He's already made us righteous. He's already taken us spiritually to Zion. And so when we gather, we sing and we praise and we worship because we have joined, we have joined an innumerable company of angels. Not only that, he says here, at Zion we join the body of Christ. We've come to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. He goes on and says in verse 24, to the spirits of just men who are made perfect. That is, when you come to Zion, you have a family. You have a fellowship. The New Testament calls it the church. And again, just as it is in our worship and our praise, it is a foretaste of what we will do forever in heaven. So is our activity in the church. Our activity in the church is a precursor to our eternal belonging in heaven. At Zion, number four, we come into the presence of God. He says, you come to God, the judge of all. You come to God. Now remember, at Sinai, God's presence was forbidden because of sin. But at Zion, God's presence is accessible because of Christ. Yeah, he's still the judge of all. We'll talk about that in a moment. He has not changed since Sinai. What has changed is our ability to get to him. What we could not do in our own strength, Christ did for us. And so when you come to Zion, you get to come to God. You come to Sinai, you don't get to come to God. Is that clear? He says, number five, at Zion we come to Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, he says here. No man comes to the Father except by Jesus. In fact, coming to Zion is coming to Jesus. He is in us. And we in him. And then number six, at Zion we come to the forgiveness of sins. We come to the forgiveness of sins. Something Sinai could not offer because nobody's good enough to keep the law. There is no forgiveness at Sinai. Jesus is not at Sinai. You can't get into the presence of God at Sinai. There's no church at Sinai. No, but at Zion we have all of this. We come, look at the very last verse 24, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel. In other words, Jesus' blood is the only blood that has the power to forgive sins. And when you come to faith in Zion, faith in Jesus, then the shedding of Christ's blood forgives all your sin. There's a better mountain, church. A better mountain. I don't know if you're a mountain or a beach person. I'm a beach person. But I like the idea that there's a better mountain in Jesus Christ. 
He's a better mountain. He's the best one you'll ever come to. Again, at Sinai, there's condemnation, but at Zion, there's a cross. Legalism. Legalism is Sinai. It leads to death. Death. Because you can't do it. That's why some of you come from churches where they hang that over your head all the time. Oh, sure, you prayed this prayer, but you got to wear this, and you can't go here, and you got to do that. And if you can't do it, then God's not going to accept you. And so you live in this bondage and fear. I can't do that, so I might as well give up. The writer says, no, 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 don't give up because you didn't come to Zion. You came to Sinai. You came to Zion. You come to the place where there is grace. And that is the whole point of what he's saying in this. He's saying here, if you've come to Zion, then why in the world would you ever want to go back to Sinai? And some of you know that all too real. If you were saved from Sinai, why do you want to go back and live in that environment? Why do you want to act like you're from Sinai? Why do you want to make your whole Christian religious experience as if you're camped out at Sinai? You've not come to Sinai. You've come to Zion. You see, living at Sinai is a life of fear and bondage. I've got to do all these things in order for God to accept me. And no matter how you look at it, that is works. I don't care what you say. You claim Jesus all you want to, but some of you are still trying to get to heaven and get God to accept you because of your goodness. You're not good enough. You never will be good enough, and neither will I. Nothing to God I bring, only to the cross I cling. I don't get to stand up in front of God one day and say, God, look at look, look this church I pastored, and I was a good husband. I washed the dishes every day, and, and Pastor Neil was preaching on vacuuming yesterday. It's good. I vacuum. I had no, no conviction right there. I vacuum. I wash the dishes. Now, let me tell you, fellas, there's some benefits that come from that. I don't get to stand up in front of God and say, look at what I've done. I was my kid's baseball coach, and I didn't look at this, and I didn't drink that, and I didn't. God said, I don't care about all that. I want to know what your faith is in Jesus Christ. You, you, you don't get to come to this place because of all the things you did and didn't do. You get to come to this place because of what Christ did. But some of you are still living in a work salvation world. i got to do all of this. And if I do this and I do that, then I know I'll be godly. And I know that God will accept me better than he accepts me now. Of course, that legalism always leads to judgmentalism, doesn't it? Because we begin to think our list of do's and don'ts makes us better Christians than the others who don't have the same list of do's and don'ts. And we quickly judge them for not living up to the standards that we've created. All the while, turning a deaf ear to the gospel of grace. Come to Zion, Christian. Stop living in Sinai. God accepts you because of Jesus. He loves you because of Jesus. He has made you his child because of his child, his son, Jesus. Jesus is what compels us to become holy like him. 
The fact that I am accepted in my sinfulness. I am loved even though I'm unholy. That, that's what compels me to want to do more for God and be more for God and, and become like And it's not my desire to be accepted that is to drive my holiness. It's the fact that I am already accepted that drives me to want to be more like Him. It's the greatest motivator. And I am so sad. I am so sad that I've had to repent of the Lord of this even as a pastor. That I've tried to use guilt to motivate people. Fear to motivate people. You don't do this, then then God's going to do that. The last two years of my life have been the worst I've ever experienced. But but, But in another respect, it's been the best I've ever experienced. God has made me a new man. And sometimes it's little messages like this that come along the way. That reminds us that God never motivates us to come to him out of guilt and fear. He motivates us to come to him out of his love and acceptance of us. This is what I've done in Jesus. And when you begin to realize what he has done for me in Jesus, how can I not give my life to him? You've come to Zion. Stop living like a citizen from Sinai. terrifying over there. It's bondage. It's fear. No wonder you're grumpy all the time. No wonder when you come to church you don't like anybody because they're not living up to your standards. And maybe it's because you're not living in Zion. All right, I close with this two things and some of you are glad that I am. Two closing imperatives. Number one, we see it in verse 25. Let us be sure that we are listening to and obeying the voice of Jesus. A lot of voices, okay? A lot of voices. We need to be sure we're listening to the voice of Jesus. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. You see, you are either hearing the gospel of grace and believing it this morning, or you are hearing the gospel of grace and rejecting it. The warning here is that not one person who rejects the voice of Jesus will escape God's wrath. So see to it, he says. See to it. There's a lot of voices. Sinai compels you to come over here because Sinai makes more sense. It makes more sense that something like this can be earned, that I've got to do this. It doesn't make sense that it's free, that it's grace, that all I've got to do is trust Jesus. And so what do we do? We tend to go toward things that make more sense. That's the voice in our ear. Come over here. This is what makes more sense. This is what makes you more godly, all this kind of stuff. No, you be sure you're listening to the voice of Jesus. He is not calling you from Sinai. He is calling you from Zion, the place of grace place of love, the place of his glory. And if you're not listening to Jesus, you will not escape his wrath. Think about Matthew 7 often. Lord, have we not done all these things? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. I, I, I hear what you're telling me you've done, but, but I never knew you. Because you never really listen to my voice. You listen to some preacher's voice. You listen to some church covenant voice. 
You listened to some list of rules that were a voice in your ear. But you never listened to me. You never actually came to grace. You were trying to do all of this on your own. Oh, the writer says, see to it that you listen to the voice of God. One of the greatest days in my Christian experience is when I stopped listening to everybody else and started listening to Jesus. All right, here's the second imperative. Let us be sure that we are giving Jesus acceptable worship. Let us be sure that we are giving Jesus acceptable worship. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, all this stuff that people are living for in Sinai, one day God's going to come, he's going to shake it, it's all going to disappear. But our kingdom, our kingdom of grace, it's not going to be shaken. It's going to stand forever. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably now with reverence and godly fear. Acceptably, acceptably. I don't have time to park here only to say that acceptably is first and foremost in view of God's grace and glory, not in view of our strength and goodness. That's how we worship God acceptably. In view of his grace and in view of his glory, not in view of my strength and my goodness. So when we come together on Sunday morning, it's not about look at us, look at how good we are. Look at how good I am. I'm dressed nice. Everybody coming in here with their burgundy on today. Nobody gave me the memo. Burgundy and red. Burgundy and red, all this nice clothing. I'm just, I'm just trying to keep this bottom button from coming loose. <laughs> Everybody all walking around. Look at me. Look at me. I'm hoping you don't look at me. <laughs> it's true. Now, I see you looking at it, Noah. Stop. <laughs> you just stand right here. We, we think that's worship. Look at me serving. Look at me singing. Look at my dress. Look at my standards. Look at where I didn't go this week. Look, look at what I'm doing. Look, look at me. No, no, no. That's not acceptable worship. We don't come here to worship each other. We come here to worship Jesus. So we're not looking at our goodness and our strength. We're looking at his glory and his grace. And may we do that now, all the days of our lives, because that is what heaven really is. He's a better mountain. We're more like molehills. He's a mountain. And let's not overlook the final verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. I'm confused because this whole time, Sinai, judgment, judgment, judgment. And now he closes with this picture of God's judgment. That's the point. Listen. God is a consuming fire, does speak of his holy perfection, his judgment. And the God of Sinai has not changed at all. He is the same God today, yesterday, forever. Okay? So that same dark, fiery cloud of holiness that descended down to Mount Sinai is the same fiery, dark cloud of holiness that fills all of Zion. God has not changed. What has changed is our ability to come to him. To come into the presence of this holy God. It is on the merit of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And you see this consuming fire. It will one day act in supreme judgment. It will. 
Those who depend on their own merit, climbing Mount Sinai, will face his judgment of death. But those who depend on Christ's merit, who are resting on Mount Zion, we will be saved from the wrath that is to come. So by faith, put up your tent and rest at Zion. Because all the work you're doing is going to get you nowhere but condemnation. Jesus has done it all. Are you climbing Sinai? There's a better mountain. It's a lot easier. It's Zion. The mountain of God's grace and gospel. Just trust him. Stop trusting you. May God help us to see the truth of his gospel. Let's stand together for prayer.